Welcome to Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast offering news, analysis and commentary. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 170, and it's 21st of November, 2021. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? I have been reading the Attack of the Clones novelization, which we're going to talk about in our spotlight later. And I also watched the new kind of featurette, I guess, on Boba Fett called Under the Helmet on Disney+. Plus which I enjoyed, and I believe your Star Wars week has been exactly the same, Kirsty. Is that correct? Yep, those two things, and I guess just kind of processing all of that incredible Star Wars news we got from Disney Plus Day. <laughs> it's just so much. Oh, your dry humour, Kirsty. It's just perfect. <laughs> yeah, no, that was quite funny, because obviously everyone got themselves all worked up in the expectation there would be, I guess, at least something. I'm so glad for once I wasn't on the hype train. <laughs> yeah, same. I was completely disconnected from that. And yeah, I think in the end, wasn't it just like a feature for Obi-Wan that had actually leaked the day before? So. <laughs> yeah, and apparently it's a year old anyway. Oh, they showed no. it to investors last year. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so embarrassing because we know they have like three shows filmed, you know, that yeah. haven't aired yet. So they have footage, you know, they could do something. It's like, gosh, what's wrong? I think it would be fine if, you know, whatever their marketing strategy is to like, you know, if they, if they want to promote things later on, they've got their schedule already worked out, that's fine. But then don't make this day into a really big deal. And for a while I was like, oh, maybe it's just the fans kind of hyping each other up a, a, again, because that does happen sometimes. But then someone pointed out that the like official Star Wars Twitter account the official Disney Plus account, all of these accounts have been like, mark this date in your diary for like weeks. Yeah. <laughs> like making it into this huge deal. And I was like, wow, if I had marked that date in my diary, I would be annoyed. <laughs> yeah. No, I feel sorry for people. And I know lots of the fan sites like Star Wars Newsnet had indicated that there would be like an Obi-Wan trailer, like an actual trailer, not a behind the scenes featurette style thing. Um, and I think they said that with the best of intentions, you know, they didn't want to mislead people. They had genuinely had sources tell them things, but obviously for whatever reason it didn't come to pass. We did also get like a confusing like sequence of like rumours and refutations about Chloe Zhao, like directing and then definitely not directing a Star Wars movie, um, mm. which is kind of good that that fell when it did, because otherwise we'd have had an embarrassing segment talking about our feelings on Chloe Zhao directing a Star Wars movie. And then the following week would be like, well, she's definitely not directing a Star Wars movie. <laughs> so. Well, and, and nothing's been said officially either way. No. Like no one at Lucasfilm has denied those rumours. It came from another, was it The Hollywood Reporter? So it's just... Yeah, I don't think it was even anything that high level, to be honest. But yeah, yeah, it's just a lesson, I think, in not taking any of these rumours too seriously unless they're super, super official. We need to talk about the Boba Fett Under the Helmet documentary now. Uh, so yep, yeah, well, we won't talk about this for ages because it's quite like a short, fluffy type of thing. But we did want to acknowledge that we'd seen it and talk about our feelings a little. So yeah, what did you think about it, Kirsty? I definitely enjoyed what was there. Mm-hmm. Like it was really nice to see them acknowledging and kind of celebrating the history of Boba Fett, um, where that costume design came from, and how it kind of captured the fans' imaginations. And like they worked out how to get him into Star Wars and everything, um, and to kind of go through all of the different people who betr- portrayed him as well, especially Jeremy Bullock and having his wife there talking about how important that was to him and how he knew what Boba Fett meant to those fans. Yeah. Now, that was all really lovely. 
Steve, seeing Steve's Sound Suites collection and talking about where Boba Fett came from in terms of the little toy that was originally it was on that pre-order thing and originally had the jetpack and then he didn't and stuff I love all that stuff I did think it was a little strange that they had these people talking about how great it was that George didn't feel the need for a backstory and that was kind of part of the magic of the character and that less is more with Fett they were saying stuff like that and then it didn't come back around to kind of addressing the fact that they are going to do more with this character so it just kind of struck me as a little strange given the context which is obviously that this is gearing up towards a Boba Fett series but maybe there's more to come to kind of explore that yeah no absolutely it made some interesting choices along those lines because yeah it kind of very much seemed to emphasize the superficial appeal of the character and I know that sounds like a criticism but I don't mean that you know it's a genuinely really cool costume you know so I understand why people were really captivated by that you know just from the visual alone but the documentary is so much about that and you know they even explicitly say as Kirsty mentioned the fact that part of the appeal is that there isn't a backstory you know you don't know where he came from or what his origin was and then when you pair that with the fact that we're about to get a mini series called the book of Boba Fett which presumably to some degree is going to have to illuminate <laughs> his past and what type of person he is you know why are you doing a show about that character in particular you know and it just seems like a bit of a weird combination so yeah I enjoyed it on its own terms you know it was a really interesting documentary in terms of how that character came to be developed in the first place and the development of the appearance of Boba Fett you know and how that costume evolved like seeing that footage of the all white costume was so cool because I'd never seen mm. that before yeah. Um, but yeah just paired with the knowledge that we're going to get this new series about the character soon it just seemed a bit dissonant it's hard to describe but yeah a slightly weird direction I think for the documentary I felt like they could have made it more into a case for why we're getting the show rather than just being like oh this character's really cool and we're also getting a show about him you know it just didn't seem to like match organically yeah like I said I I hope that that thread will be kind of picked up later because it seemed so pointed that they were including those quotes earlier on about the lack of backstory for the character and that being part of the key appeal because obviously it lets kids and adults imaginations run wild right if you don't have that law there people can make up whatever they want for the backstory that they're playing with the action figures and stuff and I believe people when they say that that was the appeal of the character, you know, that he was just kind of there in the background. He had very few lines. You didn't know what he looked like under the helmet. And obviously that's like the name of this featurette, Under the Helmet, but I didn't really feel like that's what they did. Mm. It was mostly about the costume itself. Obviously they um, acknowledge Tamara Morrison's performance. They go into the prequels and they talk about how Django is like almost another boba so that you can kind of get to know the adult boba that way but um i just thought they were going to go further with the fact that we have this new series coming up with adult boba you know but maybe it's just to come (laughs) maybe i'm getting too ahead of myself they should have called it boba fett the helmet i just left it there (laughs) no need for under (laughs) i did think it was really interesting to think about how they had that um parade and in um is it marin county so they had darth vader who was obviously already 
visually iconic at that point like people knew who that character was but then he was walking along with Boba Fett yes and no one knew who he was the Empire hadn't come out at that point but everyone was like wow who's that because he is interesting to look at but yeah just the kind of place where it leaves things it's like and (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly could have done a little bit more and just as like a quick aside about that footage I loved how you know, you could see some moments where I think there was like a little toddler going up to Darth Vader, you know, and yeah. being like, oh, Darth Vader, you know, just like <laughs> no fear, you know, just like complete yeah. wonderment. And I thought that was so sweet because it's like, baby, this is meant to be like the scariest man in the galaxy. And you're there acting like it's Father Christmas or something. It was so cute. <laughs> Another point of amusement was George trying to subtly distance himself from the holiday special. <laughs> Oh, well, they did this thing. I, I didn't really have anything to do with it. Yeah, he had to get that in there, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Although I've also got to say, I noticed they show you glimpses and not just of the cartoon with Boba Fett in it. They show you a little clip with Lumpy. Okay. So you yeah. see part of the live action aspect of that holiday special. And that proves to me they have a pristine quality of that special. And they're denying it us. Yeah. They put the cartoon up on Disney Plus, but the whole thing... I've yeah they could do it couldn't they yeah exactly it's within their power but they just don't want to and i think they need to be brought to the light they need to understand the magic of the holiday special i think it might happen eventually because this week it was life day and they were selling life day merch yeah no it's true it's like the renaissance of the holiday special yeah yes they were selling like literally chewbacca and like the red robe weren't they and that's very very specifically from the holiday special and the orb and stuff yeah yeah, although I guess they might argue it's been re-canonized recently with like one of the new gift books they've done, and oh, it's whatever. related to that. But who cares? We all know it's from the holiday special. <laughs> we all know, and yeah, it's time will come. It's time will come. <laughs> okay, um, but yeah, let's move into the news. So the first piece of news is that Natasha Lou Bardizzo has been cast as Sabine Wren in the Ahsoka show. Um, could you read out the write-up from Deadline, please, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. Natasha Lou Bordizzo, The Society, has been cast as a lead opposite Rosario Dawson in the Disney Plus limited series Star Wars Ahsoka, a spin-off from the streamer's hit series The Mandalorian, I have learned. I hear Bordizzo will be taking on the character of Sabine Wren from the Star Wars Rebels animated series. Reps from Lucasfilm and Bordizzo did not return emails seeking comment. They never do. (laughs) (laughs) We wanted to announce it. (laughs) I bet they're pissed. <laughs> no, um, yeah, this is interesting to me, I guess, because it kind of confirms rumors we've heard for ages about this Ahsoka show basically being like a sequel to Rebels, um, because I have not seen Rebels, um, confession time, um, but I know that it leaves off with Ahsoka and Sabine together, and apparently they're on some sort of adventure to find Ezra again. Is that correct, Kirsty? Do you think you've seen Rebels? And I haven't. It is. I'm. Yeah. I'm trying to read back a rant here because yeah. <laughs> I'm really I'm confused as to why this the story of Sabine and Ezra is being like spun off into a show that is called Ahsoka. Ahsoka. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And like they're like, oh well it's a spin-off from The Mandalorian. I'm like, no, it's the sequel to Rebels. Yeah. That was about these characters the whole way through. It's really odd to me. <laughs> yeah, it's very confusing. I remember a while ago now, as in like, I think over a year ago, there was a rumor that 
like production had started on an animated Rebel sequel and had actually produced a great deal of it. You know, it was quite far along, but they basically started developing this Ahsoka show and they realized they wanted to tell the story they were going for in the animated sequel in the Ahsoka show. So they scrapped the animated show and, you know, made this Ahsoka show instead. And uh, like, if that is the case, I personally think that's monumentally stupid. I think it's such a strange decision because Rebels has a really devoted fan base Mm. and a lot of people who watch it because they love the style of animation. Yeah. And you're not going to get, you know, I'm not saying that the story will necessarily bad in live action, but it, it seems like a, a a strange choice to make where like you're following this story and then you're like, and then we're going to do this in live action. And actually this character is going to be the main character. And, and she wasn't, in Rebels or so because obviously in it but she's not the main character I mean it, clearly it's what they set up in that episode where she's like where's Thrawn but again you know it's Sabine who has that strong emotional connection with Ezra yeah like, I, I don't know yeah and it's tricky so I'm coming at it from a different perspective in that I haven't seen Rebels and you know similar to Kirsty, I wasn't really planning on watching the Ahsoka show anyway but if anything, this is making me feel like further alienated from that Ahsoka show precisely because I haven't seen Rebels. You know, and all these announcements coming out make it increasingly clear that it's going to be very closely tied into the story of Rebels. And, you know, I'm sure there's ways of telling the story in this live action show in a way that make it very simple and easy to follow for people who have no idea about what happened in Rebels. You know, but at the same time, I'm sure that if you do have pre-existing familiarity with these characters you're going to have a much easier time following what's going on, you know, and it's going to be much more friendly towards you. And yeah, I guess I'm interested in seeing how it's done from an academic point of view. You know, I just can't think of anything equivalent to this, you know, where a story started off being told in live, started off being told in animation, and then there was a direct continuation in live action, you know, that just strikes me as very odd and unusual. So I'm curious to see how they approach it, but... I'd be lying if I said I wasn't sceptical, but, you know, I, I wish them the best, you know, I want these actors to do well and have, like, good roles and opportunities and everything. So, yeah, we'll see, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um. Right, then the next thing we want to talk about is that Kathleen Kennedy has apparently renewed her Lucasfilm contract for another three years. Um, and this is from Stars Newsnet, but they're reporting on comments from Matthew Baloney. Just, sorry, just because of the similar <laughs> sound to another word of Puck News. And they report it as follows. Matthew Baloney's latest op-ed for Puck Newsletter casually revealed that Kathleen Kennedy would be extending her tenure at Lucasfilm for another three years. Kennedy has a lot of good things happening at Lucasfilm, and I'm told she recently re-upped her deal for another three years. This matches her last re-up back in 2018, which extended her contract to 2021. The current deal will now keep Kathleen Kennedy in charge until at least 2024, at which point she'll have to weigh up, um, weigh out her options once again. I've never heard that expression, weigh out. I always thought it was weigh up, but whatever. <laughs> um, mm. Yeah, so I kind of like this because it's going to make the worst people angry. Um, and... Yeah, I guess I just didn't have any sense that she was about to depart soon, so it's not surprising to me. Do you have any particular feelings about this, Kirsty? No, because like you said, it just hadn't been on my mind. Yeah. And if she continues to be the boss there, I guess that's not unexpected. Um, 
I'm just a bit... I'd never heard of this Puck newsletter and apparently they were making all sorts of proclamations about Ryan's trilogy being cancelled this week as well. So I'm like... I'm not saying I don't believe this, but I don't know if they're like super trustworthy. Yeah, I I looked into this. I, it didn't take much looking to be fair. It's on the Puck News website, but I think the reason people are giving this credence is because this Matthew Baloney guy he previously worked for the Hollywood Reporter, so he's not a nobody. You know, he worked for the Hollywood Reporter for twelve years, I believe. Now, for he worked for the Hollywood Reporter for fourteen years. So he would have had connections, you know, from that experience. So it's not unreasonable to think he does have actual sources he's hearing things from. I don't 100% trust him because I do think he's very slanted, particularly against KK. And that will come up more in the next news story we talk about, which is also like derived partially from what Baloney said, basically. Um, So we can go more into that. But it's coming from someone who has reason to know things basically but i take the stuff about ryan a little bit as less solid information i suppose yeah i believe the kathleen kennedy stuff because wasn't frank marshall retweeting it on twitter yes exactly that's yeah. the main reason that's I was the like, confirmation to yeah. me <laughs> but like i don't as far as i can tell nothing else you know the, the patty jenkins and ryan johnson stuff it hasn't been backed up by like any other trade publications or uh, it just kind of seems like hearsay at the moment yeah we can go into that exactly yeah there's more to come i kind of have it in my head that kathleen kennedy probably wants to make sure she gets at least one more successful star wars movie in theaters before she's done um and that's just completely me projecting just to be clear i have no information to that effect and who knows if that will actually happen because obviously recently their priority has been the streaming shows you know and it makes sense that's been the priority for marvel as well but it's been a long time well, long time in Star Wars terms, you know, since we last had a movie. And it's going to be a much longer time because there's nothing imminent on the horizon, you know. So it would be nice, I think, if there could be at least one more movie before she's done. Because I'm just going to check how old she will be in 2024 because, you know, she's clearly very fit and healthy and I'm sure she wants to keep going, you know, for a while yet in the industry. But at a certain point, you know, how long do you want to keep going, you know? (laughs) Yeah, because she's 68, you know, and so in another four years, she's going to be 72 and she could easily keep working, you know, through her 70s if she wanted to. But at the same time, it's also very reasonable if she wants to retire at some point. So, yeah, time will tell. We'll see where we are in another four years. Yeah. Um. OK, cool. So then the next thing to talk about from an actual source is in The Hollywood Reporter. Um, is that Patty Jenkins film Rogue Squadron has been officially delayed um, and separately, we'll talk about rumours that have been circulating from the aforementioned Matthew Baloney. But for now, could you talk about the report from The Hollywood Reporter, please, Kirsty? Yeah, I guess last time we recorded, there was like a, a rumour this was going to happen, right? Yes. That the movie that they were going to film next wasn't going to be Rose Squadron, but despite that, at that time, being the next on the calendar. So I guess it's panned out. Yeah, exactly. So this isn't a complete surprise, basically. Rogue Squadron, the Star Wars feature project due to be directed by Wonder Woman filmmaker Patty Jenkins, has been caught in the tractor beam and will take a little longer to make it to the big screen. Jenkins and writer Matthew Robinson have been developing Squadron for Lucasfilm for over a year, with the goal of starting production in 2022. It was to have gone into pre-production by the end of this year. 
However, sources say the producers and filmmaking team came to the realisation that Jenkins' schedule and other commitments wouldn't allow for the window needed to make the movie in 2022. Thus, Squadron has been taken off the production schedule. The hope is that once Jenkins fulfills her previous commitments, she will be able to return to the project. Yeah, so as we were saying, this isn't completely unexpected. Um, It's a bit of a shame because obviously they did make a big show of this announcement, you know, about Rogue Squadron. And they had that really cool video of Patty um, at the airfield, you know, and getting into the plane and talking about how personal the story was for her. Um, From this, it doesn't sound completely catastrophic. You know, it does sound like it will still happen just later than planned. Um, but obviously we need to see how things pan out because often these reports, they don't contain the entire truth, you know, so you can't necessarily take them at face value. So I have seen people point out the fact that, well, if she had all these other previous commitments, why would they have, you know, scheduled Rogue Squadron for when they did, Mm. you know, which I think is a good point because, you know, all these contracts would have already been signed presumably before the Star Wars deal because they were about stuff like Wonder Woman, which predated all this Star Wars business by several years. So I think that's a good point. Um, Do you think there's a possibility that Jenkins would end up being replaced? Like, I don't know if this is better or worse, but I kind of feel like if Patty Jenkins goes, the project goes with her basically like and again that might be wrong you know the only reason I say that is because it seems like a very personal project to her well that was the spin but like (laughs) I guess it depends like to which extent it is actually personal to her I believe it when she was talking about was it her dad who was a a pilot yeah and yeah I, I don't you know I'm sure that she was excited about that prospect but like it doesn't mean that another filmmaker couldn't step in yeah, and find it just as meaningful for themselves personally. Yeah, I just feel like it would be a bit of egg on Lucasfilm's face at this point because they did release that video. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it would be a bit embarrassing, and I think they'd also need to be very careful about who they replaced her with if they did that. You know, can you imagine the optics if they replaced her with yet yeah, another white man? They've been doing that with writers on the projects as well, haven't they? So yeah, it's tricky. We know for a fact that Deborah Chow did at least successfully finish directing the Obi-Wan show. But obviously yeah. at the same time, TV directing is very different from movie directing. So that's a separate conversation. But they did, but they did re- they replace the writer on Kenobi with a white guy. That's what, yes, yeah. that's true. They did. Yeah, so they have a not great track record in that area. But yeah, we'll see. Basically, it's still very early. You know, this news has only just come out. So who knows what will happen with the, this project. And obviously we've had these like vague rumours about a potential Star Wars movie filming next year. But who knows if that will actually happen because at the moment we know nothing solid about that project. Just very tenuous rumours. So like this news just basically throws Star Wars movies into an even deeper limbo than they already were. So yeah, who knows what will happen next. Um, and yeah, just to add to this, um, we did have a little bit more about this piece of news from the aforementioned Matthew Baloney um, and again like the reason we're crediting this at all is because he did used to work for the Hollywood Reporter so it does presumably have some connections but at the same time that doesn't mean he's infallible so kind of take it as with a pinch of salt um, but yeah in his newsletter he said I talked to a few insiders this week and they said the real culprit was the dreaded creative differences specifically Jenkins couldn't agree on the script with Lucasfilm executives including senior VP Michelle Rejwan. So that's out there. 
again like we have no idea if he's just stirring shit or like if there is actual truth to this rumor but i thought it was worth chucking in there because it's not from my cousin's uncle's roommate on reddit you know it's from someone who has some experience in industry and so the bit about ryan in that article was it just like oh well we're kind of assuming that his trilogy isn't happening because we haven't heard anything about it yeah like i kind of got that vibe from it you know so it did seem very casual the way the ryan business was mentioned it wasn't like oh another piece of news is that the ryan johnson trilogy has been officially cancelled and taken off the slate you know it's like all the same happened with ryan johnson's planned films you know and that to me did seem a bit more like an assumption you know like just Mm. from the casual way in which it was mentioned but again like i don't know and it was so ambiguous in the way it was written it could mean anything which is right. why these rumors are so difficult to talk about isn't it because they're usually so like uh-huh. <laughs> like i don't know what to say yeah i mean at this point i wouldn't be surprised if ryan's trilogy isn't happening but we just haven't heard anything definitive either way exactly so. yeah and we like to keep that candle burning because <laughs> we would really like that to happen yeah you know, aside from being a fan of Ryan's in general and a fan of his Star Wars movie, obviously, um, you know, it's fair to point out that his Star Wars movie came in under budget, ahead of schedule, like, no, apparently, no big disagreements internally, if that's what they're talking about here, with these big differences. Like, there wasn't, at least that wasn't part of the public narrative, you know? Yeah. That like anyone was at war with Ryan over his story. It all seemed very harmonious. Yeah, it only seems to have been after when the film came out that there's been the controversy around it, but that's not doesn't have to mean that Lucasfilm themselves feel that way about it. Exactly, yeah. It, it's it's a bummer because I don't expect them to ever come out and say his trilogy isn't happening because that's not good PR. Yeah. They'll just like drop it and never mention it again. <laughs> but the the article announcing it is still up on com, and I'm like, would you take it down quietly if if it wasn't going to happen? I don't know. Exactly. I'm willing to be a complete conspiracy first about the Ryan Johnson trilogy. So you think it's going to happen after he's fil- filmed his two Knives Out sequels? I wouldn't want to say anything as solid as that, to be honest. No, I mean, like, that's your conspiracy theory. Like, I can say that's my conspiracy happen. theory. Yeah. Like, in the sense that I wouldn't be shocked if that is not the case, you know? But... Yeah. At the same time, I'd be so happy if it was. So yeah, we'll see. Either way, we're going to get lots of future Ryan Johnson projects. And even if they're not Star Wars, I'm still excited for them. So yeah, we're going to win either way. So it's all good. Um, okay, cool. So let's move on from there into our spotlight on the novelization of Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. So yeah, could you just briefly bring people up to speed on the project we're doing on the novelizations Kirsty, and just explain what we've done before and why we are doing this <laughs> why are we doing this sorry it's quite an existential uh, question isn't it <laughs> because we want to <laughs> because it's fun. yeah that is at the core of it that's the main reason yes yeah we already did the original trilogy novelizations last year and yeah now we're doing the prequels and phantom menace was last episode if you missed that one go back and check it out and I think you can listen along even if you don't read the books, but we do recommend that you do, obviously. Yeah. Um, and today we're talking about Attack of the Clones. And I will start by saying that I am very disappointed in everyone who did not inform me that there was Baru and Shmi content here. 
Yeah, and a lot of it, especially for Shami, it's basically like a Shami novella at the beginning. It's like, bloody hell, what is this? In a good yeah, way. Yeah, I just, you know, I've been active in this fandom for what, like six years now, and no one told me that. I, I haven't even seen extracts of it, like excerpts posted anywhere. Haven't seen people talking about it. It's like, this is like what we've been looking for. And it was right here all along. Like actual, the story from Shmi's perspective, she's a character in her own right. So is Baru. Baru is given personality. She has wit and sass. She's talking back to Klieg. She's like, you know, daughter-in-law. Shmi loves her. But they have a relationship. It's it's really great. Yeah, she has preferences. She has dreams. She has goals. It's all like Mwah, chef's kiss. It's very good. So yeah, guys, you've got all that in store. So I hope you're very excited. Um, because I'm a traditionalist, we have a structure for these novelization discussions. <laughs> so we're going to start out just with a little bit of background to the novelization. Um, and I must begin by saying this was really the most challenging one to find out anything about it really in terms of how it came to be obviously it speaks for itself you know it's a novelization of the film so it's not that surprising you know but for all the others I feel like you can find many many interviews with the authors where they talk about the process of creating the novel how it was to work with Lucasfilm you know the particular decisions they made about how to write certain characters etc etc I could find them within like 10 seconds of googling you know author name and novelization name so it was very easy but with this one, nothing was coming up. I could find interviews with the author, R.A. Salvatore, about his other Star Wars novel, which is Vector Prime, which I'm sure you're all very excited to hear about. Um, but yeah, about the Attack of the Clones novel, almost nothing. Um, so yeah, to give a bit of background to this guy who wrote the book, um, Salvatore, he wrote the aforementioned Vector Prime. That is a new Jedi Order novel. And it's most famous as the book that killed Chewbacca. <laughs> and I haven't read Vector Prime, but my understanding is that um, like <laughs> Chewbacca's killed when like a moon impacts with him <laughs> or something. I still don't understand that, but whatever, you roll Star Wars, you roll. <laughs> um, and yeah, people were very upset and angry about this. This happened in the late 90s, you know, that's when the book was published. Um, and just to give a bit of insight into how Star Wars publishing worked back then, I did find a little interview from R.A. Salvatore's own website, actually, which is very charmingly old fashioned and out of date. But whatever, it did have some good information. But yeah, basically, he talks about how that came to be, basically. And the short version is he didn't decide to kill Chewbacca. Um, but yeah, could you read out that interview except I've highlighted Kirsty? Mm hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of writing Vector Prime? How did you become involved? Whose decision was it to feature the death of a major character and how was Chewie chosen? What part did George Lucas play? After I agreed to do the book, I was given a general outline of the story arc for the 20 plus books of the New Jedi Order, along with a general idea of what they wanted the new threat to the galaxy to look like, and was instructed to take the information and put together an outline for a book that would set up the series. There were a few necessities, such as which characters had to be included, mostly those from the movies, the basics of the alien threat, and oh yeah, the death of Chewbacca. Who made that last call? It came out of a meeting at Skywalker Ranch, I'm told, between the folks at the book publisher, Del Rey, the folks at Lucasfilm, and a couple of the previous Star Wars authors. I have no idea how involved George Lucas was in that decision. 
I doubt that it was his explicit decision to kill a character, but I'm pretty certain he gave his approval for the act and the particular character. Certainly my instructions on the issue were clear, coming from both Del Rey and Lucasfilm. <laughs> I'm confused. <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> kill Chewbacca. <laughs> Yeah, just do it. I I just want to know like how that meeting went. I'd love to like hear an audio recording of that meeting. You know where they're clearly like brainstorming and hashing things out, and like yeah, someone needs to die. Who should die? Is the trust Chewy fake out meant to be a nod to that? <laughs> uh, I really strongly doubt JJ Abrams has come within ten feet of the Star Wars oh, EU. No. No, we have footage of Terio surrounded by EU books. Oh, you're right. Oh, my God. Yeah. So maybe one of those books is Vector Prime. Jesus. <laughs> it's all coming full circle. Um, yeah. And I just felt like this was kind of shitty because it wasn't his decision to kill this character, okay? It was the decision of literally a committee, a bunch of people sat at a table, you know, deciding which character to kill for whatever reason. I don't understand. Maybe I'll understand <laughs> if I read the new Jedi Order books. Um, and yeah, like this poor guy, you know, who was just doing the job he was given, you know, R.A. Salvatore, he then got death threats, you know, which is just like insanity, you know. In no world should you ever get death threats for killing off, like, a furry bear from a science fiction movie in a book. It's just absurd. I hate how unsurprising this is, given yeah. what the Star Wars fandom is like. Yeah. I am kind of struck by this idea that he was given an outline of the story arc for 20 books. Yeah. At the start of the series. I know. That strikes me as like an insane level of planning, as in like too much planning, to be honest. Hmm. Um, but maybe that's just my personal preference. Like, to me, I just look at that and I'm like, God, what a nightmare. <laughs> it's it, it's just interesting given the ongoing conversation in in fandom like is it better to plan things out or to have things kind of made up as they go along so i guess i'm kind of like in the middle you know like i don't want people to completely wing it you know i don't think that leads to good results god <laughs> rise of skywalker um but at the same time planning a story arc for 20 books bloody hell Although I do, part of me does wonder if that sort of thing has happened for the High Republic. You know, it's from the way they talk about it, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, as they talk about how, oh yes, all these phases and stuff. So they could have easily done that again more recently. At least with the High Republic, what comes across is that the authors are very much involved in that decision. Yeah. Whereas this is almost like plug in an author. Yeah, that's you know, true. It can be anyone who actually writes it. That's like the afterthought. Yeah. Um, and I definitely wouldn't want Star Wars movies to come along like that. No, definitely not. It's like work for hire, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so yeah, poor guy, basically. And I'm very sorry that was his first experience of Star Wars publishing, um, being treated in such a shitty way by fans. Yeah, given that, it makes it all the more surprising that he decided to do another one. I know, right? And that's why I was frustrated that I couldn't find an interview about why he decided to come back again, you know, after that experience. Mm. But alas, I could not. Um, but yeah, so I did some digging into the internet archives and I found what, from my perspective, might be the only interview R.A. Salvatore has ever given in written form about the process of working on the novelization of Attack of the Clones. It's from the official StarWars.com website and it was actually posted in October 2001, long before the film came out and long before the novelization came out. See, it was quite fascinating. So he was basically giving an update on how progress was going with the novelization and what was going into it. 
Um, so could you read out the excerpt I have highlighted, please, Kirsty? While Attack of the Clones is coming together in the editing suites of Skywalker Ranch, author R.A. Salvatore has just finished a major milestone in another important part of the tale. The best-selling author has just delivered the first draft of the novelization of the film. Covering over 20 chapters, the novel not only describes what will be seen on movie screens next year, but also offers insights into the character's thought processes and establishes new scenes that did not appear in the screenplay. Salvatore worked with writer-director George Lucas in crafting these original sequences. I'm having a blast with this, the author says. I had a great meeting up at the Skywalker Ranch with George Lucas and really got some insights into what he's trying to accomplish beyond the film. Among Lucas's mandates for the novel is that Salvatore concentrates on Padme's side of the story. George actually took me down to the screening room and showed me all the stuff they shot with Natalie Portman and Aidan Christensen, says Salvatore. They were beautifully shot. She's quite a presence and Aidan holds his own. He does a good job. In addition to the screening and meetings with Lucas, Salvatore thoroughly studied the script by George Lucas and Jonathan Hales. I thought the script had a lot of meat that I liked because I like dark, he says. A lot of it's psychological. You've got this really torn teenager. You start seeing the indications that something's not right in Anakin's world. Yeah, and I just thought this was a really interesting insight into the priorities when the novelization was being written. And I did really appreciate seeing that George Lucas had specifically asked him to focus on Padme's feelings and her side of the story. Because, you know, when you just read the novelization, you don't know what's coming from who. You know, because obviously some of the stuff that's not familiar from the film, it might be a deleted scene, for example. So therefore it was in the script and it's just Salvatore adapting the script. But other times it is purely Salvatore, you know, and when that's the case, you're like, is that just him using his imagination and going, well, and going with what feels right to him? Or is it him, you know, following George's instruction and trying to fulfill an aspect of the story that George particularly wanted to see explored in more depth? So, yeah, I like to see that George found that further exploration of Padme important enough to be a point of emphasis. Yeah, and that was, for both of us, one of the key takeaways from reading this. Like, we were texting each other like, wow, there's so much Padme, It's there's so much from her perspective that kind of reframes how you think about certain scenes and what she's kind of going through in those moments. So, yeah, for that reason, I would recommend that anyone read this who's interested to learn more about Padme's perspective through these events. Exactly. Yeah. And I also like um, the fact that he describes Anakin as being a really torn teenager, because I think yeah. that's so critical to understanding Anakin in this movie and feeling like empathy and sympathy for him. You know, so obviously you do see a lot of criticism about him being whiny and obnoxious and creepy and stuff. And I understand why those criticisms are made. And I think you can kind of soften your perspective a bit towards the character if you do keep in mind how very young he is, which it seems like Salvatore really got. And I do think that comes through in how he writes Anakin as well. So yeah, I was pleased to read that. Young and really, I don't know what the word is, not emotionally neglected because everyone cares about him, but the way that the Jedi conduct themselves and encourage each other to go about their emotional lives and the fact that he's still he he's never getting over the separation from Shmi, obviously. Like he's he's going through a hard time. Exactly. I'd say he's pretty starved of affection. 
to be yeah. honest because the jedi they do obviously care about each other you know and they feel things for each other but is not the same as the kind of like warmth and love people can share in different contexts and yeah i think anakin really feels that loss poor guy um but yeah let's move on to our general thoughts and verdicts on the novelization um so yeah do you want to go first Kirsty? obviously we've alluded to the fact we feel quite positively about this one but yeah now is the time to really let loose and like go big with your thoughts yeah straight away just those first few chapters i was really excited when i realized what they were doing the um kind of starting things from shmi's perspective on tatooine when she's married klee glass and she has this kind of new family talking about how much she loves owen as you know she thinks of him as a son but she's still out there looking at the stars thinking about what anakin's doing um and how much she loves baru as owen's girlfriend and how she has suspicions that they'll probably get married soon and thinking of her as her daughter-in-law and it was just really really lovely to see shmi's perspective and and know that that was valued um I'm assuming that George also talked to Ari Salvatore about that, but it's not like right there in these comments that we have from him. But if it's like, oh, please include Padme's perspective, I wouldn't be surprised if he was like, please give give us some more Shmi there too. Because obviously in the movie, we're following Anakin's story, so we only really get Shmi when he gets to that scene where she's dying. Um, but what they really did here as well was emphasize how much Klieg and Owen were trying desperately to rescue her as well and how much they sacrificed there like that was made abundantly clear yeah exactly so I think in the movie itself it's a little bit shady isn't it so obviously you find out that Clegg brought, bought Shimmy you know and then freed her and then married her but obviously when you just have that information it feels a little bit creepy and weird and uncomfortable you know it's like what the hell is that whereas when you read the novel you do get a sense of like the genuine love and affection in the family and how much of that is real feeling for each other you know it's not like coercive or like creepy you know she is definitely a free woman making free choices for herself um so that's kind of like nice and reassuring because obviously even though she meets a horrible end in the film and the book you do know that she had like a relatively nice life you know in those years and obviously she missed her son dearly but it's not like she was suffering in slavery that whole time you know so I kind of appreciated that as it meant it wasn't just like misery porn you know about her existence up until that point um but yeah in terms of my general feelings I really liked the book um, I felt it was really good with all the character stuff and I felt like the good character moments were much more evenly spread in this one than they were in The Phantom Menace. So I think in our previous podcast we talked about how The Phantom Menace novelization is good and enjoyable and it really does a lot of great stuff for Anakin particularly. You know, he's basically the protagonist of that book. But because of the perspective that's chosen there, you know, that decision that's made to focus on Anakin... It means some of the other characters can feel like they're getting a bit of short shrift. You know, like I felt like I didn't understand Padme any better after reading that novel, for example. Whereas here, you know, we get so much extra depth and insight into her, you know, that it actually really enhances what we see in the movie. And you feel like it all just feels much more plausible, you know, than it comes across in the film itself. And I think that's what you want a good novelization to do. You want it to take something that might feel a little bit incomplete somehow and just really enhance it and yeah I feel Salvatore did a really good job 
Yeah, and I think in hindsight, now we've read both of them, they actually pair really well because they do set you up with like the idea of Padme as presented to the outside world and all these costumes and responsibilities that she has to put on herself. But then this one kind of deconstructed that and very much got inside her head what she really wants. You know, she really does want a family. She wants children. She wants to fall in love. But like the conflict that she feels with balancing her responsibilities to her role in the Senate and her people in, in Naboo like that's it's explored throughout the story it's not even just like oh it's mentioned here and then dropped it's actually part of the arc of the character and and how she weighs that with falling in love with Anakin and being immediately attracted to him honestly and that that being quite clear <laughs> which I appreciated um they did go all in on the romance there but like weighing that with the conflict so that it kind of contextualizes better what you see in the movie which to me is quite clear that like Padme obviously likes Anakin but feels like she can't get involved with him but as you said there is this like general perception in pop culture and it's not like I think that anyone's going to read the novelization and change their mind on it but there's this like yeah grander pop culture takeaway that like Anakin was too creepy and it was very much one-sided and Padme should have recognized the red flags and everything but like actually she was just as into him as he was into her she was just kind of trying to hold back a bit yeah exactly Um, so I feel like the movie definitely tries to do this it tries to acknowledge Padme's own struggles and her desires but it doesn't quite come off you know as I think George Lucas probably wanted it to um, and it, that does all come through really strongly in the novelization, which yeah, has a big strength because the mutual nature of the feelings is so important to making the romance work. You know, so if it is like just one-sided lust on Anakin's side, it's a bit like, eh, I don't really like this. And like you say, that's like a, quite a mainline perception at this point, unfortunately, of the relationship. Um, and yeah, beyond the character stuff, I felt like it did a pretty good job overall i definitely preferred the character sequences to the action oriented ones but that's pretty much a universal problem i have with novelizations so i think it's extremely hard to write action well one thing that i think that it did really well was like building up the relationship between Django and boba so that when you get to geonosis that became my focus right that it was all leading up to what you knew was going to happen to Django. Yeah, no, I can absolutely see that. So I did really like what they did with Django and Boba's relationship. I think there was just the way it was like, you know, you, you had Boba searching for his dad and trying to find him throughout, you know, like it was just because the the build up had succeeded in getting me to really care about their relationship and seeing the way Django had softened himself as a father around Boba, but like was trying desperately to shield him from the outside world and all these dangers but also prepare him for it inevitably when he goes off and lives his own life i just thought there was some really interesting stuff going on there like honestly coming back to what we were saying at the beginning about boba as a character i think some of the best boba fett character work is right here in this novelization yeah and i I didn't really expect that to be honest yeah that was a really pleasant surprise um and it kind of made me sad that this novelization isn't technically canon anymore you know so i'd want to carry that fleshing out of the character forward with me you know my understanding of the character but at the same time there's nothing to stop them from you know referring back to the relationship between Django and Boba as it's described in this book and referencing that somehow so I really hope they do so I think it's well done 
Yeah, Attack of the Clones itself is still canon. So it's only like, oh, if they wanted to contradict something explicitly that happens in this book, they could. But in terms of the general dynamics, I don't see why they'd go against anything there. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see if in the upcoming series he talks about Jango at all and his influence on him. Exactly. How did you feel it handled Poggle the Lesser? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just had to say the name Poggle the Lesser. It's a great name. I did actually really enjoy all the Dooku stuff and the build up to what was happening on Geonosis. Yeah. And it strikes me when I watch the film as well. It's just so funny to me that Dooku is the only one. He's like laying out exactly what's happening. It's like, could they have just been any more upfront? Because he's obviously concerned that a Sith Lord has taken over um, the Senate, which is ironic given the identity of that person but yeah um yeah he's like warning obi-wan and trying to get him to join him and he's right and you can tell the heartbreaking thing is you can tell that obi-wan agrees with him to some degree and he acknowledges that the rest of the jedi do on to some degree but they are kind of beholden to the republic now yeah they're kind of stuck Um, in their ways and when it's brought up with yoda he's basically like ah dooku's a liar don't worry about it (laughs) yeah (laughs) um but yeah, actually, that's a good point. So obviously, Dooku tells Obi Wan about there being this Sith Lord in control of the Senate, which is obviously true because he's talking about Palpatine. But is Dooku himself at that point also a Sith Lord, um, or is it ambiguous? The best because there's only just there's only two of them. Yeah, and they refer to Darth Tyrannus hiring D- Jango Fett, don't they? Okay, so, so it's like a secret identity. Yeah, so that that makes me even conf- more confused about why. Dooku would tell Obi-Wan that. I guess just because he wants to recruit Obi-Wan, but oh, it's just a mess. <laughs> I know, it is a bit confusing, isn't it? Yeah. I'm confused about what's a what's a hard rule and what's just the Sith, like, party line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, can there really only be two of you, or are you just saying that? I don't know. Exactly. It's like, my brain is already starting to hurt because I'm remembering that Django said he was recruited by Darth Tyrannus for this clone mm. project. And how old is Boba again in the film? Ten? He's ten. Okay. So that would mean that Darth Tyrannus was the thing at basically the exact same time that Phantom Menace happened. I guess that makes sense. Because we already get, you know, Maul dies and Sidious is immediately like, well, I need to find a new apprentice. Yeah. No, so I was thinking <laughs> there really wasn't much of a gap then. It was basically like Maul's dead. Like, oh, okay. Uh, we've got a vacancy <laughs> open here for a new Sith Lord. I mean, it happens with Revenge of the Sith as well. Anakin kills Dooku and it's like, well, (laughs) you got to replace him. (laughs) I do feel like though Sidious had his eyes on Anakin for quite some time at that point. Oh, yeah. Presumably it was the same with Dooku, though. He was kind of like scoping out his options. He knew that they're kind of temporary. Yeah, I mean, he literally tells Anakin to kill Dooku. So... (laughs) He's already got his replacement lined up. He knows exactly what he's doing. Oh god, he's such a bastard. It's so funny. Because we were talking about like a point of confusion as well with like the contrivances in the story that you know Obi Wan is like he he thinks this to himself on multiple occasions. It's a really weird coincidence that Django is the person who was trying to assassinate Amidala, and he's also the person who's being cloned for this army. <laughs> yes. So we were kind of laughing about it because it's almost like the author is poking fun at this contrivance in the story. But as we were talking about it, I was like, wait a minute, what if that was Palpatine's intention 
so that Obi-Wan or whoever the Jedi was who was selected for that mission would follow Jango and then discover the clone army and then they have the army. Someone's going to write in and tell me that, yes, this has already been confirmed as Palpatine's plan. (laughs) Palpatine is a proper big brain, if that's true. (laughs) (laughs) He must just be doing like a million calculations at once. But, you know, because otherwise (laughs) it is really easy for them to discover because all you have to do is track Django from Coruscant. Yeah, it's true. And all all these people look like him. And it also shows that Palpatine fully understands how dumb the Jedi are because the Jedi (laughs) discover the secret clone army they find out that there's this like war about to be waged upon them and they're like, oh shit, we don't have an army. Like, oh, hang on, here's one we can use. Okay, yes, <laughs> no. let's use this clone army. Woohoo! <laughs> it's just so absurd. Here's one I made earlier. <laughs> exactly. Especially the way Yoda's like, uh, yeah, I'll just go and check them out. I'll see what they're like. <laughs> and, then, and then like two hours later, he rocks up with them. <laughs> it's like, oh God. And, uh, and it's like, like again, sorry, this will be the last time I do this because you could just go on and on. But like, um, how do we, oh the people from Camino? So I remember this conversation from Bad Batch times and how I could just not mm. say the proper word. But the people from Camino, they they just have like the most bizarre attitude to like people just turning up, you know. And they don't like ask any questions. They just immediately presume that like Obi Wan like knows what's going on, and like of course Obi Wan rolls with it. So whatever but you know you'd think they'd have some sort of like vetting process you know to make sure <laughs> this is the person they're meant to be talking to about it so it would strike me well, as quite confidential but oh. uh, do they do they at first think that he is cypher Dias, or they just assume that he's aware of cypher Dias's plan and is there to like confirm things for him yeah they don't think he's cypher like, Dias, oh, but they definitely we've think been he's waiting for you him. yeah they're just immediately like oh hello master jedi we've been waiting for you <laughs> We wondered, You're a little late, but we did wonder why Cypher Diaz hadn't been answering our phone calls. So we're really <laughs> glad that you've turned up because we're owed a lot of money, actually. <laughs> I bet it was something like that. Oh gosh, it's funny. And also funny how Obi Wan is thinking as they're they're going around and they're showing him how the clones work and everything. He's like, it's really weird and uneasy how they're talking about these people as if they're just like a droid resource. But that's, of course, exactly... I mean, it's not exactly how the Jedi treat them because they do have, like, personal relationships with the clones. They have friendships and they do care about them. Yeah. But they have essentially no qualms about using the army. When it comes down to it, obviously throughout the book, they're debating, you know, the role of the Jedi, whether they should be going to war. And then the Chancellor is like... They they call this vote, basically, don't they? Whether to approve the use of an army. Yeah. And then Jar Jar grants the um, deciding vote because, of course, he does. Yeah, so they're kind of debating whether it's ethical for them to do it, but they don't really care. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just all desperately it is just confusing. like, oh, this army turned up. I guess it's meant to be. If we're just missing something that makes sense of all of this, please do email us at scavengersward at gmail dot com because we would genuinely love to hear the explanation. So it's yeah. totally possible that I'm forgetting an episode from the Clone Wars or something where they do go into this stuff a bit more. But yeah, it you know, obviously the context of Padme going back to Coruscant at the beginning is that she's going to put in that all important vote against going to war with an army, right? Yeah. And that's partly why her life is then in danger from that point on. And it makes it even more confusing because like the whole plot point at the end with Jar Jar being a proxy for her 
you know, and voting to approve the army, that suggests, firstly, that Jar Jar doesn't understand Padme's wishes at all, which is mm. surprising to me when it seems like she was pretty vocal and open about the fact that she did not want war, she did not want an army to be involved. Yeah, and he's right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he's like right there when she's saying all these things. And second of all, that everyone else is just like convinced that Jar Jar is accurately refre- reflecting Padme's views when he obviously yeah. isn't. So I know. Uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't think too hard about these things. I think that's the lesson. Um, okay, so we have some nice quotes, basically, about the different characters that illuminate the sort of things we've been touching on a bit more. Um, so yeah, I just thought we could go through these. Unfortunately, some of them are quite long. Um, and I'm just looking at that first quote I have about Padme and her sister, which is very long. Um, but at the same time, I feel like it's all kind of important. Um, are you able to have a stab at reading that? Kirsty, and if you lose the will to live, we can like reassess. The Republic is all in a tumult, but not to fear, for Senator Amidala will put it all right, Sola said. Padme turned to her, somewhat surprised by the level of sarcasm in Sola's tone. That's what you do, right? Sola innocently asked. It's what I try to do. It's all you try to do. What is that supposed to mean? Padme asked, her face twisting with puzzlement. I am a senator, after all. A senator after a queen, and probably with many more officers ahead of her, Sola said. She looked back at the playhouse and called for Ryu and Pooja to ease up. You see, speak as if it's a bad thing, Padme remarked. Sola looked at her earnestly. It's a great thing, she said, if you're doing it all for the right reasons. And what is that supposed to mean? Sola shrugged as if she wasn't quite sure. I think you've convinced yourself that you're indispensable to the Republic, she said, that they couldn't get along at all without you. Sis! It's true, Sola insisted. You give and give and give and give. Don't you ever want to take just a little? Padme's smile showed that Sola's words had caught her off guard. Take what? Sola looked back at Taria and Pooja. Look at them. I see the sparkle in your eyes when you watch my children. I know how much you love them. Of course I do. Would you like to have children of your own? Sola asked. A family of your own? Padme sat up straight, her eyes going wide. I... She started and stopped several times. I'm working right now for something I deeply believe in. For something that's important. And after this is settled... After the Military Creation Act is far behind you, you'll find something else to deeply believe in. Something else that's really important. Something that concerns the Republic and the government more than it really concerns you. How can you say that? Because it's true, and you know it's true. When are you going to do something just for yourself? I am. You know what I mean. Padme gave a little laugh and a shake of her head and turned back to Ryu and Pooja. Is everyone to be defined by their children? She asked. Of course not, Sola replied. It's not that at all, or not just that. I'm talking about something bigger, sis. You spend all your time worrying about the problems of other people, of this planet's dispute with that planet, or whether this trade guild is acting fairly towards that system. All of your energy is being thrown out there to try to make the lives of everyone else better. What's wrong with that? What about your life? Sola asked in all seriousness. What about Padme Amidala? Have you ever thought about what might make your life better? Most people who have been in public service as long as you have would have retired by now. I know you get satisfaction in helping other people. That's pretty obvious. But what about something deeper for you? What about love, sis? And yes, what about having kids? Have you even thought about it? Have you even wondered what it might be like for you to settle down and concern yourself with those things that will make your own life fuller? Yeah, thank you for reading that. I appreciate how incredibly long that passage was. It's it's just a bit tricky. So I feel like if you isolate, you know, like those final two paragraphs, you kind of like lose a lot of the context in the build up. 
because um, mm. like I, I'm kind of a bit iffy on certain aspects of this passage you know I, I don't really like the whole trope about like a woman being like nagged you know about not having kids and stuff and like that me being too I'm... treated about like it's the only way of having a fulfilling life but I do yeah. feel like they nuance it you know by saying that no that's not at all you know that indicating that yes there are other ways in which a woman can have a fulfilling life which I appreciated but then it kind of just does revert back to oh why don't you have like kids and a family yeah which, yeah it kind of like reeks early 2000s like written by a man etc etc but overall I think it makes a good point in, in like forcing Padme to confront you know what is going on with her life you know because it is a very true and accurate observation that ever since she was a child, basically, she's been working purely for the sake of others. And she hasn't had that moment to pause and think about what she wants to do for her own sake. And yeah, I, I was really appreciated this and I felt like it set up her like struggle for the rest of the novel quite well. What do you think about this passage, Kirsty? I think like you, I'm sort of mixed on it because I get what they're trying to do to some extent with you know her sister expressing concern that Padme doesn't get to live much of a personal life or you know do things on her own terms whatever that turns out to be but it is obviously the big example here is that oh well wouldn't you want to have your own family and kids and obviously not everyone wants that um yeah so it, it's tricky isn't it because it does turn out in this story that Padme realizes that she does want that but is that just convenience for the story? Is that just because we we know that that's where things have to go for for Anakin's sake? Yeah, <laughs> it's tricky, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, Padme isn't a real person. Yes. So it's more about like how things are being constructed and whether it's in service to her character or Anakin's. And I think it's sort of in between here because this is part of her arc in the story, like realizing that she does want to do things for herself and not just for her um, duty as a politician um but at the end of the day it is a contrivance and that it has to fit into anakin's arc and he has to have children yeah. so exactly because yeah the harsh reality of it is that her ultimate function in the story is to be the mother of luke and leia and i know that sounds really harsh like you were saying kirstie but yeah that's like the des final destination of that character basically so yeah you can understand why that's in here from that perspective um, but yeah, it just plays into some unfortunate kind of sexist tropes, unfortunately. And I feel like it wouldn't be written in the same way if they were to write a new novelization of episode two today. So I do feel like you can have that plot thread, you know, have that motivation and driving force behind Padme. You know, the idea of her wanting to find out what does she really want for herself, you know, without quite framing it in this way. Um, so yeah. It is an interesting passage, but I feel like it would be done differently now. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I don't. I like you. I, I'm. I'm kind of mixed on it. I don't know how to feel about it exactly. Mm. It's, like, it's like it's not bad, and it is very realistic. <laughs> and I'm sure you know so many of our listeners have these experiences with family members where they they mean well, but they're kind of like asking you all of these questions that you probably don't have the answers to or maybe not the answers that they want to hear but it kind of sparks some soul searching on Padme's part you know regardless of the outcome it's like well I guess it's not bad to think about what I want whatever that might be but yeah these conversations about whether people want children or not can obviously be very loaded so 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, hopefully it would be handled more sensitively now. Then obviously a lot of the stuff of Padme in this book is uh, framing her in terms of her relationship to Anakin. But I felt like they did quite a good job in terms of it wasn't just her being like this passive object of Anakin's desire. It was about her having her own like feelings and like desires as well, which we touched upon before. Um, and yep, I have an excerpt here that I will read out this time because Kirstie did such a long bit of reading before. Um, and this reads, Her mental eye roamed over his lean and strong frame, over his face, tight with the intensity that she had always admired, and yet with eyes sparkling with joy, with mischief, with... with longing? The thought stopped the senator. Her hands slipped down to her sides, and she sat there, staring at herself, judging her own appearance as Anakin might. After a few long moments, Padme shook her head, telling herself that it was crazy. Anakin was a Jedi now. That was their dedication and their oath, and those things, above all else, were things Padme Amidala admired. How could he even look at her in such a manner? So it was all her imagination, or was it her fantasy? Straight out of a romance novel. But yeah, like, I, I appreciated that, you know, so I feel like there was a lot of emphasis on, like, Anakin, like, eyeing Padme up and stuff, and there's not much the other way around, you know? So I like that you get her insight into how she feels about him, too, especially so early. Yeah. Oh, uh, these these were the parts where I was, like, very happy with what I was reading. <laughs> nice. Not that I, I... I enjoyed the whole thing, but there were moments where they, he did go all in on the romance, and I appreciated that. Yeah. No, definitely. And that was one of the more open parts, which is very nice. Um, and then there's quite a um, telling sequence that I felt was good to demonstrate how much the novelization can leave a different impression from the film, you know, just with that extra detail and insight. Um, and this is from the scene where Padme, I think she's packing to leave Coruscant. And she tells Anakin that he's making her feel uncomfortable, basically. Um, and in the movie, it's honestly kind of awkward, but it plays out very differently in the book. Uh, so could you read out the excerpt I have, Kirsty? He seemed so pitiable then. Not pitiful, but just like a little lost soul. Padme couldn't resist. She walked over to him and lifted her hand to gently stroke his cheek. Anakin. For the first time since they'd been reunited, Padme truly looked into the blue eyes of the young Padawan, locked stares with him so that they could each see beneath the surface, so that they each could view the other's heart. It was a fleeting moment, made so by Padme's common sense. She quickly altered the mood with a sincere but light-hearted request. Don't try to grow up too fast. I am grown up, Anakin replied. You said it yourself. He finished by making his reply into something suggestive, as he looked deeply into Padme's beautiful brown eyes again this time even more intensely, more passionately. Please don't look at me like that, she said, turning away. Why not? Because I can see what you're thinking. Anakin broke the tension, or tried to, with a laugh. Oh, so you have Jedi powers too? Padme looked past the young Padawan for a moment, glimpsing Dorme, who was watching with obvious concern and not even trying to hide her interest anymore. And Padme understood that concern, given the strange and unexpected road this conversation had taken. She looked squarely at Anakin again and said, with no room for debate, it makes me feel uncomfortable. Anakin relented and looked away. Sorry, my lady, he said professionally, and he stepped back, allowing her to resume her packing. So isn't that completely yeah. different from how it comes across in the film? It is, but I, I guess it is completely different, but it's also quite, it's such a small 
change in that it's just the fact that Padme sees someone else and is suddenly like jolted out of the situation and can see it from the outside. And she's like, oh my God, this looks like we're flirting way too much. I have to rein it in. Whereas the way that exchange is in the movie, it's more like, and I get that this is why some people are like, oh, Padme and Anakin's relationship creeps me out because she's like, it makes me feel uncomfortable. But here she's saying that because she's kind of jolted out of the moment. It wasn't that she wasn't like into it. It's more like I have to remember what I'm doing here and what our relationship needs to be. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I also feel there's just some other small subtle changes that make a big difference. Like, um, you know, when Anakin says, sorry, milady," he says that in the film as well. But in the film... With a smile. Yeah, it's like with a smirk and it's like mocking, yeah. you know, like there's no respect there. Whereas here it's, he said professionally, which makes all the difference in the world. You know, because <laughs> if he's sincere about that and if, he, and if he's genuinely sorry, you know, for making her uncomfortable, then, you know, that frames it differently. Whereas in the movie, he's just being a dick about everything. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it is different because... And I guess this just comes down to like those directorial decisions because they probably took many versions of that same take, right? Yeah. Like just, yeah, the way that he would say sorry and step back here, it's kind of him remembering where they are and what they're supposed to be doing in the same way that Padme is. Like she reminds him of that and he's like, oh yeah, you're right. This is not how we're supposed to be interacting in this environment. But as you said, in the film, he's got this little smirk on his face like... <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, but I I don't know. It's hard to explain, but people people know what we're talking about. Yeah, it's just like little twist twists like that that kind of reframe things a little bit and made me appreciate this this novelization. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but you know that whole exchange about don't grow up too fast, and Anna can say, and I am a grown up. Like, is that in the film or is that like just in the novel as far as you remember? I think it is. Yeah. It's in the film. Okay. I think so. Yeah. So I feel like I just don't remember it from the film. And like, I don't know if it's just because it's coming more into focus, like with this reading of the novel, you know, as opposed to when I watched the film, but it just really made me think about how deliberate it was that Padme is those few years older than Anakin. Because I do think she's meant to be somewhere between like a maternal figure and an erotic figure, you know, and I know that sounds like arsey and weird, but I do think that's very, very conscious because it goes straight from him pining after his mother to him falling into Padme's arms, you know, almost literally, you know, because she comforts him after his mother dies. And it's like transposing that affection from one mother figure to another. Um, and obviously it's very different with Padme, but it's still that same core emotion. And I think that's so fundamental to Anakin's fall that, yeah, I kind of think these little exchanges, you know, it's kind of like light-hearted and cheerful here, you know, don't grow up too fast. But I do think it's all feeding into that whole like power dynamic that's important to understand in their relationship. Definitely. I think, you know, he acknowledges that here in the film, but it's obviously in reference to when she first sees him again and she's like, oh my God, you've grown up, but you'll always be that little boy on Tatooine to me, you know, which he does not appreciate. I think (laughs) that's actually made really clear in the novelization how like, oh, it kind of crushes him when she says that. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, no. (laughs) That's what you want to hear from your crush, that you'll always be a little boy in their eyes. (laughs) <laughs> so true, 
God, poor Anakin. Um, but yeah, in line with that, I also have um, a quote from the sequence after Anakin returns to Tatooine um, with his dead mother, unfortunately. And I just find it kind of fascinating how differently, you know, all the emotional stuff is framed compared to the film. So I'll read this. So, Anakin... They're like animals, he said suddenly, and I slaughtered them like animals. I hate them. Padme sat back a bit, too stunned to respond. She knew that Anakin needed her to say something or do something, but she was paralysed. He wasn't even looking at her. He was just staring off into the distance. But then he lowered his head and began to sob, his lean, strong shoulders shaking. Padme pulled him in and hugged him close, never wanting to let go. She still didn't know what to say. Why do I hate them? Anakin asked her. Do you hate them, or do you hate what they did to your mother? I hate them, he insisted. And they earned your anger, Anakin. He looked up at her, his eyes wet with tears. But it was more than that, he started to say, and then he shook his head and buried his face against the softness of her breast. A moment later, he looked back up, his expression showing that he was determined to explain. I didn't. I couldn't. He held one hand up outstretched, then clenched it into a fist. I couldn't control myself, he admitted. I I don't want to hate them. I know there's no place for hatred, but I just can't forgive them. To be angry is to be human, Padme assured him. To control your anger is to be a Jedi, Anakin was quick to reply, and he pulled away from her and stood up, turning to face the open door and the desert beyond. Padme was right there beside him, draping her arms around him. Shh she said softly. She kissed him gently on the cheek. You're human. No, I'm a Jedi. <laughs> Sorry, I'll explain what I'm laughing in a minute. I know I'm better than this. He looked at her directly, shaking his head. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. You're like everybody else, Padme said. She tried to draw closer, but Anakin held himself back from her. He couldn't hold the pose of defiance for long, though, before he broke down again in sobs. Padme was there to hold him and rock him and tell him that everything would be all right. Yeah, so uh, I really like that passage. And again, I just think it's so much better done than in the film. Because in the film, you know, a lot of the dialogue is the same. You know, especially striking to me is that whole line from Padme saying to be angry is to be human. Because I think in the film, that's like a direct response to him saying I slaughtered them like animals. <laughs> And I think having that extra dialogue in between, you know, and giving her that moment to just be completely stunned into silence, you know, because she's like, what the hell am I hearing? Mm -hmm. You know, it makes it feel so much more palatable. And it's difficult to say anything's realistic in Star Wars, you know, as it's all so heightened and fantastical. But I guess realistic, you know, or at least naturalistic. Um, you know, it feels much more like human, you know, like an actual conversation I could see these characters having. Um, and yeah, I, I just like how it's executed. Yeah, I honestly get an impression from the movies that a lot of dialogue was cut cut out from the scenes, like, in post. Yeah. Which does kind of remove that important context and the emotional journey, like you say. And I, I'm not an Attack of the Clones hater by any means, so I hope people get what we're saying here. Like, I'm just kind of trying to fill in the gaps and kind of empathize with people who it doesn't work for and and why that might be yeah so i think you're very right in that i wouldn't be shocked if i found out that much of this dialogue you know that isn't in the film as it is was in the script you know rather than coming from salvatore himself um but 
yeah, it, it makes me think if it was in the script originally, it's a shame that it wasn't kept, you know, so I think it just makes the interaction so much better and so much more convincing. Um, and yeah, I just think there's something really interesting in the nature of that back and forth between them towards the end, where she's pointing out, look, you're human, Anakin, you know, and I laughed because, you know, it's self-evident, you know, to anyone with any awareness of that character. And it just kind of underlines the patent ridiculousness of the Jedi, because they are basically meant to deny their humanity, you know, to a large extent. They're not allowed to feel and do as ordinary humans do. You know, it's all about self-denial and self-sacrifice and serving others. And Anakin is clearly painfully aware of that. And it's just this miserable burden for him, you know. And it just makes me so sad for him because it's not something he ever really had an informed choice in, like any of the Jedi, because he was just a small boy, you know. And it was like a decision that was made for him by Qui-Gon. So, yeah, it's just sad. Yeah. Oh, Anakin. <laughs> Dear, poor baby. Um, yeah, so on the subject of Anakin, we have some more quotes, of course, about Anakin. Um, I did have one from the very beginning because there's a very striking description of like this nightmare he has about his mother. And basically in the nightmare, he has a vision of like seeing a happy family and particularly seeing his mother. And like he goes to her, but then she turns into glass and then she shatters. And it's a really cool and well-described sequence you know it's very imaginative so do you think that's him seeing her with the Lars family I would think so yeah that's the vibe I got especially because it comes directly before those scenes where we do literally see Shimi with the Lars family so yeah Yeah. I do think it's him having like some awareness you know the fact that she's with a family and that is all about to be broken and lost so yeah I do think it's like a premonition in that way um but yeah, for time reasons, we're not going to read it, but it's a really cool <laughs> sequence and it's one of the reasons you should read the book. Um, but yeah, one thing I would like to read, though, is the description of Anakin seeing Padme again for the first time in many years, um, just because I find it funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm sorry, it's just like complete like romance novel fodder, you know, which you'd expect It is like a patently romantic movie, you know, in that way. Well, I wasn't sure what to expect, honestly. Yeah. I was worried a bit that they would kind of shy away from it. Mm. So, yeah, and it didn't go in as much as I would have... Because, you know, I like romance novels, so I, it could have gone even further, in my opinion, in terms of, like, I was a bit disappointed when we got to the end and they didn't really add any extra detail to the wedding. Oh, God, yeah, no, that's it was so pretty... bare bones. Yeah. Yeah, it was exactly what you see in the movie. So I was like, oh, man, you really could have done more there. Yeah. Um, you mean you weren't stunned to find out it was a Naboo holy man rather than a guy that got from a different <laughs> That was planet? the one extra detail. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah, no, it was disappointing. Anyway, let me read this part. Great, thanks. Anakin, though, didn't see either of them. He focused on the third person in the room, Padme, and on her alone. And if he had ever held any moments of doubt that she was as beautiful as he remembered her, they were washed away then and there. His eyes roamed the senator's small and shapely frame in her black and deep purple robes, taking in every detail. He saw her thick brown hair, drawn up high and far at the back of her head, in a basket-like accessory, and wanted to lose himself in it. He saw her eyes and wanted to stare into them for eternity. He saw her lips and wanted to... Anakin closed his eyes for just a moment and inhaled deeply, and he could smell her again, the scent that had been burned into him as Padme's. It took every ounce of willpower he could muster to walk in slowly and respectfully behind Obi-Wan, and not merely rush in and crush Padme in a hug. And yet, paradoxically, it took every bit of his willpower to move his legs, 
which were suddenly seeming so very weak, and take that first step into the room, that first step towards her. Poor baby. (laughs) It's great, isn't it? He's got it bad. So bad. I also just appreciate the little things like them constantly roaming their eyes over each other. (laughs) They do a lot of that roaming. Yeah, and the word shapely. I feel like the word shapely is so overused to describe badly. Especially when someone's in robes. (laughs) It's like, what shape are you discerning? A sack. (laughs) Yeah, it's hardly a revealing outfit. Um, Yeah, no, it's really funny. Um... And yeah, I do think it convincingly sells you on the idea that this poor boy saw her like three times when he was nine. And ever since, he's just been thinking about her nonstop. He memorised her scent. God. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's such a weird thing. You don't know it's in the smell. Yeah, I have to put it down to his force powers because I would not, I guess smell, scent is a pretty powerful, like evocative thing. It does take you back. Yeah. But like, she's a person and he met her once as you say like three separate occasions 10 years ago she's probably changed her perfume since then yeah like what sort of 10 year old what sort of nine-year-old boy is like actively sniffing someone to figure out their scent he just wasn't a normal nine-year-old boy he was like yeah i already know i'm gonna marry you (laughs) yeah all the weird stuff in the phantom menace novelization makes sense now yeah just have to put it aside like there is a weirdness to it yeah no definitely yeah so another thing i really liked in the novelization was the description of anakin after his mother's death you know and his response to that um so i will read he sat motionless staring at his dead mother then looked up his blue eyes blazing with hatred and rage he replayed all of the recent events of his life in his head wondering what he might have done differently done better to keep shimmy alive he should never have left her here in the first place, he realised. should never have let Qui-Gon take him away from Tatooine without bringing his mother along as well. She said she was proud of him, but how could he deserve her pride if he could not even save her? He wanted Shimi to be proud of him, wanted to tell his mum all about the things that had come into his life, his Jedi training, all the good work he had already done, and most of all, about Padme. Oh, how he had wanted his mum to get to know Padme, She would have loved her. How could she not? And Padme would have loved her. Now what was he going to do? The minutes slipped past and Anakin just sat there, immobilised by his confusion, by a budding rage, and the most profound sense of emptiness he had ever known. Only when the pale light began to grow around him, making the low-burning candles seem even thinner, did he even remember where he was. Hmm. Yeah, and again, I think just having like a pause, you know, in a quiet yeah. moment with Anakin in his grief is so necessary and so important. Because again, you logically realise that when he attacks the Tuscans, it's because he's angry and vengeful because they've killed his mother, you know, so you understand that logically, but you don't really feel it emotionally, you know, yeah. it just goes too quick, I think. So yeah, just having this insight into his head, it makes a big difference. I think the way that this is presented, or maybe it's just like the way the editing... I'd have to go back and rewatch it. But the way it's presented in the movie is it's like he gets up straight after she's died and does it. And this is obviously like he's been in this like... He's been paralyzed by grief, right? And he sits there for a long time just like trying to process what's happened. And then 
yeah, like gets up and is just like not thinking clearly. He's just like filled with grief and anger. Yeah. And I think just the way it like interweaves his story with Padme up to that point into like his grief for his mother. I think that's really powerful, especially because separately we have seen, you know, the relationships that Shimi has with someone like Baru, you know, and you know that obviously she feels that affection for Baru and you know for a fact that she'd be so delighted, you know, if she knew that Anakin had someone in his life as well. And it makes the truth of that moment feel really palpable. I think so yeah it's just tragedy all round as you expect from stars and it also just makes me sad that thought that he should never have left her you know in the first place when it wasn't really his decision it was Qui-Gon's decision I know there is this sense here that Anakin comes really close to like explicitly regretting the fact that he left Shmi yeah it does tie into the idea of like it was a choice but it wasn't and he just it, it sets him on this path to total destruction and yeah it could all have been avoided so i guess that adds to the tragedy yeah and you know qui-gon was making those decisions with good intentions of course you know he thought that he was making the right choice so it is just like oh star wars is pain yeah and there is also a very interesting moment where you can hear qui-gon crying out to anakin just as he's about to go on his rampage saying like anakin no or words to that effect And it really ripples through the force because I think Yoda definitely hears it as well. I'm not sure if Obi-Wan does, but Anakin and Yoda definitely hear Qui-Gon reaching out from beyond the grave. (laughs) Um, And that was really striking to me because to the best of my recollection, nothing like that happens in the film. And the first acknowledgement that you have in the films that Qui-Gon is enduring in some way, you know, that his consciousness is still around that comes at the very end of Revenge of the Sith, you know, when Yoda's like, I have something more to teach you, Obi-Wan, your master is still around. You know, so I was like, oh, wow, holy shit, did George tell Salvatore that? I guess he did. Um, so, yeah, that struck me. Yeah, so I guess I was just struck by it because it makes me think, again, I'm thinking way too much about this shit, but, you know, like Qui-Gon, he obviously continues to persist in the like world beyond worlds or wherever the dead Jedi go, I don't know. And he's clearly conscious of what's happening with Anakin. And he is clearly seeing all this shit go down. And it's like, God, how the hell does he feel about this? You know, has he literally put Anakin on this path? You know, and in many ways, Qui-Gon himself is the one who doomed the Jedi, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just find that I guess interesting. The thing, I guess the thing with the Force Ghosts is it's like, there's that this sort of grey area, whereas it's like, is this an objective reality if in in the universe that like Qui-Gon is seeing this or is it more like a projection of Anakin's imagination in the sense that Kylo sees Han in The Rise of Skywalker do you know what I mean Mm. like I because I know that Qui-Gon does eventually become a force ghost but the way that it's framed in Revenge of the Sith it's like he's not until that point or at least Yoda isn't aware of it yeah so it's kind of confusing isn't it? it's a bit contradictory yeah, no, because again, I presume that's something Salvatore wouldn't have invented out of whole cloth, you know, or would be surprised if he did. So, mm. yeah, maybe George just changed his mind on like how he wanted Qui-Gon to manifest himself exactly. Yeah, it'd be really weird as a Force ghost if they're literally just able to watch every single event <laughs> as it's happening. Oh, God. Yeah, too much information. Yeah, <laughs> Presumably they're able to manifest in and out of the Force, well, you know the force in general like they're part of it and then i don't know 
I need to start trying to make sense of this. It's not a real thing. No, exactly. It's just a a path to um, chaos. (laughs) It is interesting to think about Qui-Gon still being part of the events even after his death because as you said it does kind of highlight his part in like the eventual creation of Darth Vader as weird as that is because Qui-Gon meant well he's certainly not a bad person so I I, sometimes I do wonder like what was George's intent there because I don't think I've really heard George talk much about Qui-Gon as a character yeah like in terms of like his traits and not not just like talking about the phantom menace in general and like the plot but you know what is qui-gon meant to represent in anakin's story yeah i must say reading these novelizations it's made me much more interested in qui-gon so i think in my head before he was just kind of boring (laughs) i know that sounds (laughs) awful because he's played by liam neeson and liam neeson's wonderful but i don't know i just found him like again like a lot of the prequel characters i'm afraid a bit flat um and i feel like the renegade nature of the character is coming more into focus for me now you know so yeah it's something i'd be interested in investigating more like you say seeing what george lucas has had to say about him because yeah it's quite interesting mm-hmm. um but yeah let's talk about shimi um because yeah she has some really nice moments in this novel um and yeah what really stood out to you Kirsty, about the shimi parts of this book and we obviously have some quotes too like which did you like best um, just kind of stuff that I alluded to before that really show that she had truly become part of the Lars family, that she was thinking of Baru as a future daughter-in-law, um, that she, you know, was watching her relationship with Owen and seeing how deeply in love they were, um, that Owen called her mum yeah. and she thought of him as a son too, not as a replacement for Anakin. And I think that does actually come up that she doesn't, she doesn't think of him as a replacement, but like if Anakin had stayed in her life, they would have been brothers. Yes. God, that's quite the AU, isn't it? Well, (laughs) (laughs) well, I I wish more of that. And again, I don't want to sound like I'm ragging on the film, but like in in the book, when like Owen does finally meet Anakin in person, he's like pleased to meet him and he's welcoming him and like saying, "I guess that makes us brothers and stuff." And I I know that stuff is there to an extent, but it's just the way it's presented in the book that just feels a bit more like emotionally weighty. Yeah. Again, maybe it's just because they've had this, the way that it's like set up in the book, um, sort of like how they set up the Phantom Menace structure in that Anakin, you got the sense that Anakin was a fully fleshed out person living his life on Tatooine before the other characters show up. And it's similar here that like the last family are there, they're living their lives and then disaster strikes and they're dealing with it before Anakin shows up, you know, um, and then he does, but like they're they are characters in their own right and i just really love the way that's presented yeah no absolutely it's really well done um would you be able to read out the exchange between shmi and owen early in the book kirsty i think it illustrates their relationship quite well and shmi's feelings about anakin as well mm-hmm. no starship tonight mum. owen asked good-naturedly he knew why shmi had come out here why she came out here so very often and then quiet night Shmi turned her hand over and gently stroked it down Owen's face, smiling. She loved this young man as she loved her own son, and he had been so good to her, so understanding of the hole that remained within her heart. Without jealousy, without judgment, Owen had accepted Shmi's pain and had always given her a shoulder to lean on. No starship this night, she replied, and she looked back up at the starry canopy. 
Anakin must be busy saving the galaxy or chasing smugglers and other outlaws. He has to do those things now, you know. Then I shall sleep more soundly from this night forward, Owen replied with a grin. I had to let him go, Shmi said quietly. I could not keep him with me if that meant living the life of a slave. I know, Owen assured her. I could not have kept him with me even if we were not slaves, she went on, and she looked at Owen as if her own words had surprised her. Annie has so much to give to the galaxy. His gifts could not be contained by Tatooine. He belongs out there, flying across the stars, saving planets. He was born to be a Jedi, born to give so much more to so many more. That is why I sleep better at night, Owen reiterated, and when Shmi looked at him, she saw that his grin was wider than ever. Oh, you're teasing me, she said, reaching out to swat her stepson on the shoulder. Owen merely shrugged. Shmi's face went serious again. Annie wanted to go, she went on, the same speech she had given Owen before, the same speech that she had silently repeated to herself every night for the last ten years. His dream was to fly about the stars, to see every world in the whole galaxy, to do grand things. He was born a slave, but he was not born to be a slave. No, not my Annie. Not my Annie. Owen squeezed her shoulder. You did the right thing. If I was Anakin, I would be grateful to you. I'd understand that you did what was best for me. There is no greater love than that, Mum. <laughs> it's really sad, isn't it? Because you feel like Shmi's trying to convince herself. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, like, and I'm not fully convinced that she 100% believes everything she's saying. I think she believes a lot of it. But, you know, she's had to repeat this to herself over and over again. That illustrates to me that she's kind of, like, doubted her own conviction you know that this was the right thing to do for everyone involved Mm -hmm. and I think when you compare this to that passage we read earlier about Anakin after his mother dies you know you see explicitly there that he like questions himself and is like what if I'd stayed you know and like you get the sense that he really just wanted to be with his mother and yeah it's just tragedy upon tragedy basically so while it's nice to get you know that lovely relationship of her and Owen and you know that knowledge that she has had a relatively happy life for the last few years it does I think make her death even more tragic and consequential when you get there which is obviously the point that's why this is here um but yeah I think it's effectively done it's really like well handled I'm growing a new appreciation for Owen as well because in the original Star Wars he's a bit of a grump yeah it's not the nice you know it's not like he's horrible to Luke but he's like no, you need to stay here with me and help. And they, with Baru too, they just give them like a sense of humour and a familiarity and an ease here, which, yeah, it's just not quite present there in the first film. Because obviously they're fulfilling a very different purpose there. You know, they're older. They're meant to be kind of like um, worn down by <laughs> the harshness of Tatooine. Yes. And, you know, they're being like the grumpy parental figures that Lou wants to defy, right? Yeah, um, exactly. But this proves that everyone is young once and everyone starts off at least with a sense of humour, even if they lose it. <laughs> so it's it's nice, like, from a fan of Luke, as, that perspective as well, to get to know the people who raised him a bit more, even if it's from when they were younger. Yeah, 100%. Because, yeah, it just gives a bit more context to everything. Yeah, because Owen loved Shmi, so of course he'd want to take in her baby grandson yeah right exactly because otherwise it just feels a bit random doesn't it it's like you always think he'd wonder like who are you because he only met anakin that one time and 
on the basis of the film itself, it doesn't seem like there's any particular like rapport or affection for Anakin. Whereas in the novelization, you get the background that Shmi came into Owen's life when he was probably a kid himself. You know, he's Anakin's age, and he was maybe like what eleven or twelve, and so she's been like a second mother to him. And in that whole time, she's been talking about Anakin, you know, and how much she loves her son and stuff. So if anything, when Owen was taking Luke in, he would have been doing it to honor like the woman he fought of as his mother. So, yeah, I think that adds a really nice new dimension to it all. Yeah. I I know this sounds silly, but... And I feel like I say something similar every single time we talk about a novelization, but I really appreciate how they do add an extra layer of depth to the movies, you know? Because when you start reading one and you're like, well, really, what is this going to do? Because I know this story, I know these characters, but they can... Just the way that they structure things can completely change your perspective on certain scenes and events. Exactly, yeah. And even just like very small, subtle changes can make a big difference, which, yeah, is testament to the power of writing, I suppose, and the magic of the written word. So, yeah, pick up a book, everyone. It's worth it. <laughs> they're, they're jolly good. Um, well, and you can feel it seeping into your understanding of the film as well. So I feel like next time I watch Attack of the Clones, this stuff will be in the back of my head. Exactly. I really, really hope we get more stories about Shami. You know, like, and just more insight into her like this, you know. So I think, like, no, we have a story about Baru, don't we, in one of the From a Certain Point of View books. Um, But I'm not... We do. And she's going to be in Kenobi. Yes, that's true. So. So yeah, I hope she's actually treated as a character in that, you know, like how she's treated as a character in the novel. Um, So yeah, that's the perfect transition point to go on to what Shimmy thinks about Baru. So yeah, I'll read this. Smiling warmly and glad that this young woman was soon to be a member of their family, Shimi handed a knife over to Baru. Owen hadn't said anything yet about marrying Baru, but Shimi could tell from the way the two looked at each other. It was only a matter of time, and not much time at that, if she knew her stepson. Owen was not an adventurous type, was as solid as the ground beneath them, but when he knew what he wanted, he went after it with single-minded purpose. Baru was exactly that, and she obviously loved Owen as deeply as he loved her. She was well suited to be the wife of a moisture farmer, Shimmy thought, watching her methodically go about her duties in the kitchen. She never shied from work, was very capable and diligent. And she didn't expect much, or need much, to make her happy, Shimmy thought, for that, in truth, was the crux of it. And just separately, I very quickly wanted to read out an excerpt from considerably later, where Baru was basically making small talk um, with Padme um, while they're <laughs> trying, yeah, to. trying to um, <laughs> while they're waiting for Anakin to come back and it's the literal definition of chalk and cheese so we get a little <laughs> bit more um, insight into Baru basically at work preparing a meal for Anakin Padme was surprised when Baru came up to help her and even more surprised when the woman started some small talk with her what's it like there Baru asked Padme looked at her curiously. I'm sorry? <laughs> I love that because she's like so shocked Baru saying anything. <laughs> On Naboo, what's it like? Padme could hardly even register the question, for her thoughts remained of Anakin. It took her a long time to respond. But finally she managed to say, Oh, it's very, very green. You know, with lots of water and trees and plants everywhere. It's not like here at all. She turned away as soon as she finished and knew she was being a bit rude. But all she wanted was to be with Anakin, and so she started loading the food tray. I think I like it here better, Baru remarked. Maybe you'll come and see it someday, Padme said, more to be polite than anything else. But Baru answered seriously, I don't think so. 
I don't like to travel. (laughs) 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 Which I think is so perfect because that's literally how small talk goes. You know, you, you know, if it's someone you don't know very well and, you know, they might like express an interest in where you live and you might say oh yeah you should come and visit and you can tell they don't really want to come to visit <laughs> it's just really <laughs> awkward <laughs> so yeah you can tell R.A. Salvatore has been in some of those conversations I think from this yeah I think it's funny that Baru goes through the trouble of asking what it's like but not to the extent that she'd actually want to see it herself <laughs> So, well, I can just take your word for it. Exactly. It's like the purest <laughs> small talk, basically. It's like, well, I'm going to pretend to be interested, but I'm not really interested. And there's some Tatooine positivity. Yeah. Guru wants to stay on Tatooine. Exactly. So somebody out there likes Tatooine, which is new information. So I think before we were pretty firmly of the impression that everyone basically consider it, considered it a hellhole. And yeah, even, honestly, even Brew and Owen in the original Star Wars, they don't seem overly enamoured with it. They're like, this is our I mean, life. Owen seems pretty bitter and overworked, but Baru kind of seems content. Yeah, she's just and rolling along, isn't you know, she? You know, Making blue yeah. milk. So yeah, good for her. Sorry, this sounds dismissive. <laughs> I, I do respect Baru, I promise. <laughs> I'm happy to join the Baru defence squad when such a thing is created. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, again, like, you don't get like a huge level of insight into Baru, but I think it's exactly what you need. And I just appreciate like the little touch, you know, just having like that sort of like relationship between the women and the fact that the time is taken to acknowledge that Shimi has any feelings about her at all. You know, they're not considered yeah. these like separate entities living separate lives. They're all this family unit. So of course they have these relationships and this closeness. So yeah, mm-hmm. I appreciated that. Yeah. Again, it just kind of, connects all these events with Luke's life as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Exactly. It's nice. Um, and then it's very, very sad, but I felt like if we were gonna talk about the Shimi stuff, we also had to talk about Shimi's thoughts about Anakin as she's dying. Um, okay. I'm sorry. Um, could you read this out, Kirsty? My voice is going a bit <laughs> <laughs> But despite the good fortune that had brought those three into her life, improving her lot a millionfold Shmi Skywalker had always kept a special place in her heart reserved for her Annie, her son, her hero. And so now, as it seemed the end of her life was imminent, Shmi's thoughts focused on those memories she had of Anakin, while at the same time she reached out to him with her heart. He was always different with such feelings, always so attuned to that mysterious force. The Jedi who had come to Tatooine had seen it in him clearly. Perhaps then Annie would feel her love for him now. She needed that needed to complete the cycle to let her son recognise that through it all, through the missing years and the great distances between them, she had loved him unconditionally and had thought of him constantly. Annie was her comfort, her place to hide from the pain the Tuscans had and were exacting upon her battered body. Every day they came in and tortured her a bit more, prodding her with sharp spears or beating her with the blunt shafts and short whips. It was more than a desire to inflict pain, Shmi realised, though she didn't speak their croaking language. This was the Tuscan way of measuring their enemies, and from the nods and the tone of their voices she realised that her resilience had impressed them. They didn't know that her resilience was wrought of a mother's love. Without the memories of Annie, and the hope that he would feel her love for him, she would surely have given up long ago and allowed herself to die. Sorry, I know that's a really grim passage to read. Oh, gosh. Yeah, you just really feel for her again, and I like that they make like the pain and suffering about her you know and I know it feels like a weird statement but again because in the film she's basically just like this tortured object for Anakin to find 
you know, whereas here you kind of get the reverse and it's about her experience of that pain, you know, and what keeps her going through it all. You know, you can infer a lot of that from what goes on in the film, but it's just really foregrounded here, you know, the fact that she does have that, like, strength to keep going, like, in that awful, awful situation um, because of Anakin. And this is kind of headcanon it's not made explicit in this passage, but, you know, that idea of her desperately trying to communicate with Anakin across this vast distance, I really like to think that the force ability that Anakin has, it is, like, rooted in what his mother has as well, you know, so I think she's often just treated as, like, this vessel, you know, like, the person who, like, gave birth to him and brought him up, but I feel like there is that, like, deeper, like, force connection between them as well. And that's why that communication of a sort is possible, you know, and why he has those nightmares about her and how he can feel her, you know, when they're separated by like an unfathomable distance. So, yeah, I, I like to have that interpretation, basically, of the connection between them. Yeah, this passage really got to me because when she's talking about needing to complete the cycle, like to be reunited with Anakin mm. and let him know that how much she loves him. Mm. It just kind of reminded me that, like, you know, the Phantom Menace, it, it kind of starts off the Skywalker saga by separating mother and son and how there were hopes for the end of the Skywalker saga that mother and son would be reunited. Yeah. And yeah. it happens in a fashion, but still with death as the thing that brings them together, which is what happens here, too. And it just, there's just so much death and suffering in Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> it just feels unsatisfying, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you want it to be a happy reunion for a change yeah yeah no it is really sad <clears throat> and yeah and that the name skywalker comes from shmi you know obviously we know from the phantom menace she says anakin there was no father so it's you know a matriarchal it's a name matrilineal it, it's handed down from her yeah she's the origin again, point of it all yeah sometimes i think that gets forgotten yeah, no, I feel like Shmi's like treated like an afterthought, so that's a big part of why this novelization felt so special to me in terms of really foregrounding her and yeah, not dismissing her or treating her as just like someone for like Anakin to go and save. You know, she's not just like a MacGuffin in the story; she is a person with all these experiences and dreams and hopes and and also just another thing I forgot to mention earlier. I really, really loved the added detail that we find out in the novelization that Shmi was the one who finished off C-3PO. Because, yes. Yeah, because when Anakin leaves, he's obviously half finished. And I just thought that was such a beautiful touch because it does so much all round, you know. It gives Shmi, like, agency and, like, a sense of her, like, skill and intelligence, you know, and being able to do that to begin with. And it's also quite, like, a touching emotional thing because for her it's, it's almost like an acknowledgement of the fact that Anakin isn't coming back to fix C-3PO himself you know so it's kind of like a letting go for her you know in finishing the job that he started um, so it's like a bit bittersweet I think is the way it's described but yeah I really really liked the inclusion of that and it sounds like you did too Kirsty yeah definitely um, yep and then we'll just finish off the character spotlight bits with the Django and Boba Fett stuff um, I know this particularly like spoke to you didn't it Kirsty? do you want to speak a bit about what you liked about it yeah i was i was pleasantly surprised by it and it, i guess because boba was already on the mind given that we have the series coming up <laughs> yes. and we were watching the documentary this week so i was already thinking about him and obviously tamura's version of him um so django's relevant to that too but 
it was just like this really interesting thing and I, I guess it did tie in as i said earlier to what george was saying about how Django was just another version of boba um for attack of the clones so i guess that was like a clever way to show boba in in a certain point in his life for that story but like there's this interesting interplay it's like actually part of the novel to determine whether boba has his own personality or whether his upbringing is he's going to shape him more than just his dna right because he's set apart from the clones exactly and obviously they do emphasize that he's different from the clones and that he's a proper like identically genetical genetic copy to Django, right but he he doesn't age faster or anything like that and he's not wired to be more obedient he's just a kid who happens to just be Django again <laughs> yes but boba's kind of saying that to him like when boba is praised by Django for doing something right he's like well that's just because i'm you and and Django's like Django surprised me in terms of, i shouldn't say that i shouldn't be like whoa it surprised me that this guy was a good father because i guess because he's a bounty hunter <laughs> what's this prejudice against bounty hunters Kirsty? for shame but he genuine he genuinely really loves boba and i think it's emphasized as well by the kaminoans surprise that he would want a son as part of his payment yeah to like don't you think it's weird that he asked for a genetic copy for himself just to like have a kid around they don't understand that what he wanted there was a family and and he's raising boba in that way to be his son and it's just really touching so he's like encouraging boba to see himself as an individual yes you're my son but you're not just me you're your own person and i guess that's something that I'd like to see followed up in the series. Like, how does Boba see himself? What's his identity? Because obviously when he's introduced again <clears throat> in The Mandalorian, he echoes his father's line about, oh, I'm just a simple man trying to make my way in the galaxy. And I know it's a funny thing where it's like, does he is he saying that because he knows that's what his dad said? Or is it just like a funny <laughs> wink wink to the audience? Yes. But yeah, so how genetically predisposed to say that exact line. <laughs> in relation to his father that he has his chain code and that he recognizes that armor as his birthright but who's he going to be beyond that and are we going to see him stepping into a role that's kind of an evolution of that um in the book of boba fett so we'll see yeah no that's really well stated really good force um and yeah i think the idea that came across in the novel that most interested me perhaps is the implication that Django had a bad childhood, you know, that his parents didn't do the best job with him, particularly his father. Um, and I almost get the sense that with Django and Boba, it is about him having his own family and having a child, but it's also about him trying to, like, reset his own life almost through the medium of Boba Fett, you know? So, like, what would my life have been like if I'd had a good dad, basically? You know, so I think that's part of it. And yeah, it's just such an interesting idea because so much about the clones is all clinical and cold, whereas it does seem like there's all this like emotional, sentimental stuff going on with Django and Boba. And again, I feel like the novel is the place where I've seen that explored most thoroughly. And it's not like in it a lot, you know, it's just a few passages. Um, but yeah, it's there more so than it is in the film. And I'd really, really love to see like just some sort of acknowledgement of that stuff in the new show but yeah time will tell it might be something completely different um and yeah i'll try and judge it on its own terms basically when it arrives mm -hmm. yeah 
Um, but yeah, that looks great. Do you have any closing thoughts, Kirsty? Um, I don't think so. Just kind of to reiterate the, the sort of things we've been talking about that I uh, was really impressed with how it depicted Anakin and Padme's relationship. Very mutual. Yes, they like the look of each other, <laughs> but it is deeper than that. Um, and And how that kind of deepened Padme as a character as well like showing her conflict um and yeah I guess we didn't we didn't get a chance to talk about Obi-Wan as much but I I think he does have a lot of love for Anakin and a lot of concern about where he's going and whether he has enough guidance and stuff and I just yeah you get the sense of Obi-Wan that he is kind of overwhelmed yeah like to have that level of responsibility and not much helpful guidance from the other Jedi Um. yeah no we didn't have a chance to go into it unfortunately but yeah the rest of the Jedi are basically a huge clusterfuck in this story there is an interesting point we didn't talk about but there's this point where Obi-Wan it's pretty clear that he knows that Anakin is in love with Padme Mm. and he's like well maybe it's kind of like a a good test for him (laughs) to go with Padme to Naboo and see what happens which I appreciated a bit more than just like, oh, I guess the Jedi are kind of stupid and don't know what's going to happen there. It's like, well, Obi-Wan does know, but he sees it as like one of Anakin's Padawan trials. A learning <laughs> to opportunity. To not be tempted. <laughs> yeah, which of course he fails. <laughs> oh gosh, it's so funny. With the benefit of hindsight, it's all so blatantly obvious, isn't it? Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, I'd say if you like the movie, it's definitely worth checking out. And even... To be honest, even if you're a bit mixed on the movie and you want to see the same story handled a little differently, I'd say definitely check this out. You know, she might be pleasantly surprised and you might find it works a bit better for you in this version, you know, as opposed to the film. So, yeah, I would recommend it to anyone who has an interest in the story. Yeah, and, you know, for all sorts of things, and we've talked about it with Owen and Baru, even if you just want a little bit of a preview of their relationship before the new Kenobi series might be worth just dipping into those chapters about those characters because that was a surprise for me and i really appreciated it yeah because you just you just don't have much of owen and baru in in canon otherwise do you exactly and i hope that we see some traces of their characterization here in the obi-wan show you know where they're not quite so like grumpy and uh, i don't know like middle-aged <laughs> you know that sounds ageist i'm sorry but you know what i mean you know they seem but they were obviously very deeply in love and affectionate and you don't see much of that like you you see affection to, for Luke in the original trilogy, especially from Baru. But in terms of them as a married couple, yeah, I, I would love to see a bit more of that. Same, get a sense of the relationship. Um, okay, but that's great. Let's wind it up. So I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918. I'm Kirsty, and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye. Bye.